if you would please take your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Somebody left a ring in the ladies' restroom, so if you're missing that, if you'll just come up and let me know that you're missing that. We'll get that back to you. Acts chapter 18 tonight. Uh, I promise you, uh, you will not hear many sermons over what we're going to be talking about tonight. And I hope that it speaks to hearts, because I have no doubt that it's what the Lord has laid on my heart. And so if he lays something on my heart, I can't but preach it. It's kind of like what Peter said, I think. How can I but speak of the things that I've seen? Uh, (laughs) uh, Me and Amy have a song we listen to in the car. It's kind of a redneck country song. Not like a country song, but it's kind of redneck. It says, I done heard and seen too much. I can't stop praising his name. And so I like that. That's basically what Peter says. But Acts chapter 18 tonight, we'll read 11 verses, and then we will actually uh, move on over to the book of 1 Corinthians for a little reference uh, for, uh, so that we might be able to understand what's going on. The Bible says in Acts chapter 18, verse number 1, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Now, we spoke last week about Paul's uh, uh, basically preaching in Athens. We talked about how uh, some received him, some did not. But at the end of the day, he presented Christ and trusted Christ to uh, let his word work in their hearts. And now he's gone from Athens and found his way to a town called Corinth. The Bible says in verse 2, And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius, Claudius had commanded all Jews to, part, to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Now I just believe, if you really understand the Apostle Paul, and you understand his heartbeat for the Jewish people, his kinsmen is what he calls them, in Romans chapter 3, you understand that that was not an easy thing for him to say. In fact, I quite believe it broke his heart to have to say, if you won't hear the message, I'll have to stop preaching it to you and go to somebody else who will. Because he was, they were on his heart. But we continue reading and we find in verse 7, he departed thence and entered into a certain, certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. We began to see the formulation of the first church here at Corinth. In fact, it's the church who the book of First and Second Corinthians is written to. It's this group of people who were seeing come to know Christ and be baptized. And if you're baptized, you're not baptized into a fellowship. You're not baptized into a, a tent revival. You're baptized into a church. And so as Paul's baptizing here, he's baptizing these folks 
into the church that is formulating at Corinth. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, verse 9. Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. I don't know about you, I find it odd that directly after seeing a a man baptized and seeing a large group of people saved and baptized, I find it hard or, or kind of strange to understand why God would send this message to Paul. Paul, don't be afraid. I'm with you and I've got your back. But Paul should be riding high on the mountain right now, right? Isn't that what every church wants to see? Isn't that what every missionary goes to foreign fields to see? Is that people would come to know Christ and that they would be baptized and they'd become active members in a local New Testament Baptist church. And and that's what, he should be riding high on the mountain. Then why would God send this message? I want you to find your place and uh, keep your place there, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, the good thing is we have many uh, uh, times when Paul writes letters about uh, times that he spent with churches or, or times when he would uh, be praying for churches. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is exactly that. Paul is actually referencing back to our scripture. The day he leaves Athens and first comes to Corinth where there is no formulation of church, where there is no body of believers, it's just Paul and the message of Christ. And that's all he has. I want you to look at what Paul said about his emotional state at this time. We'll start reading in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. The Bible says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now I want to draw your attention to this next verse, because it's very important to our sermon tonight. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You want to know why God sent this message to Paul? Be not afraid, Paul, for I am with you. Paul says it in verse 3. He was. He was afraid. He was trembling. He was worried about something. I want to talk to you tonight about one of those things we just don't talk about. What I mean by that is, America in 2010, Americans spent $11 billion on antidepressants. And what I mean by... I'm going to talk to you about one of those things we just don't talk about, is there seems to be a silence when it comes to people and their feelings. 
as if somebody being disappointed or heartbroken was such a bad thing. We almost look at people in the Bible like they're robots. Like they weren't allowed to have emotions, so they weren't allowed to have feelings. But truly, every one of them did. This morning, Dr. House referenced one of my favorite people. Uh, she actually is a huge fan of mine, and I'm a huge fan of hers. Uh, her name is Siri. For those of you who do not know what Siri is, a few years ago, Apple released a product that was on their phone. It's a software who can hear your voice and not do what you say. What's funny about Siri is she's actually quite interactive. She actually will speak to you. And just for demonstration purposes tonight, I want to invite Siri up on the platform with me, okay? And I'm going to ask Siri a series of questions. And I've asked her several of these questions that I will ask her. And she has responded differently every single time. So if she slips and says a curse word, it is no reflection upon me. It is what she hears my wife say to me in the car. All right. All you have to do, I have an iPhone 4S because I'm rich and I'm still on eight years ago technology. But uh, uh, I'm going to speak to Siri. All you do is you press this button and you'll hear a beep and I'll ask Siri a question. And she will respond to me how she feels it is appropriate to respond to me. And I've already said... She's responded to me differently every single time I've asked her, okay? You ready? Siri, do you like me? I'm not just your friend. I'm your BFF. <laughs> How sweet was that? I, I, you know, that was the first time I've got that answer, so... Amy, you just got demoted. <laughs> me and Siri have been spending a lot of time together when you were not at home. You've been watching Caitlin, and it's been me and Siri. I'm going to ask her another question. Siri, why don't you ever do what I ask you to do? Checking my sources. Here's what I found on the web for why don't you ever do what I ask you to do. <laughs> Appreciate that. That, that, that works. <laughs> That's good, okay. Siri, that is not what I asked you to do at all. Who, me? Siri, I don't really like you right now. Who am I to say otherwise? In fact, Siri, I think I downright hate you. You know, it doesn't really matter what I say to Siri, she's still going to be able to sleep tonight. She's a robot, we understand that. Uh, she's software, and, and I could say, I love you, Siri, and she would have a, a witty comeback, a witty response. I could say, I hate you, and her voice doesn't change at all. In fact, it's still creepy, no matter what happens. But you know what I've learned over my brief years on this earth? People are not robots. People have emotions. People have feelings. And people feel 
real hurt and real pain. And I want to point out to you tonight that the greatest men in the Bible felt hurt and felt pain. Moses was one of the greatest leaders in the entire Bible. I don't believe you'd find one theologian to argue that. One of the greatest leaders. God directly spoke to Moses, the Bible says, as face to face. Not only uh, when he went to the, the tabernacle, but when he was at the burning bush, God spoke to Moses like he was standing right in front of him. There was no confusion for that day. The bush says, you tell him, I am sent you. Moses was one of the greatest leaders, and he had one of the most difficult tasks ever assigned to any man on this earth, and that was lead a bunch of obstinate Jews out of slavery. Moses did a tremendous job. But did you know he had his bad days? Did you know the Bible says in Numbers chapter 11, this is Moses speaking to the Lord, after the children of Israel time and time again have complained about the manna that God provided them, they say, we remember the fish that we so freely received when we were back in Egypt. Although God was faithful every morning to give them exactly what they needed, they kept complaining, and this is what Moses had to say. Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? Wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? He goes on to say in verse 15, And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand. Moses, a man called by God, provided for by God, one of the most godly men in the Bible, and he looks straight at God and he says, God, it's too much for me to handle. Did you know Moses is not the only man to ever get overwhelmed in the Bible? Joshua after Achan takes of the accursed thing and they go to fight the battle at Ai, Joshua is so defeated and so uh, down because of the defeat of those men that were killed there at Ai. He says, would to God we would have been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. Now, does that sound like a thing that one of the men who was going to lead the children of Israel into Canaan would say? Would to God, would we have just been content not possessing any more land? We should have just given up a long time ago. That's one of the greatest military minds ever on this earth saying that. Moses and Joshua had their times where they were down, when they were, if you want to call it, depressed. Elijah was probably, if not the greatest, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets saw some of the most amazing miracles in his day. Remember the bad, uh, uh, I call it the battle, but remember the showdown at Mount Carmel? Remember when he called all those prophets out and says, oh, if you believe in your God, I tell you what, how about we just have a shootout? How about we just throw your God against my God? We'll pull off the gloves and we'll see who the real God is. And those men sat down there that day, cutting themselves, throwing themselves on the altar, trying to get Baal to do something, trying to receive a fire from heaven. And Elijah just sat there the whole time, laughing and mocking at them. And Elijah says, oh guys, I want you to pour a little water on my altar to make it a little more difficult to handicap this thing just a little bit. And I tell you what, guys, that's not enough water. Why don't you throw on a little more water? Because my God can, is not going to uh, uh, have any trouble with a damp altar. We need this thing to be soaked. 
And they bring water in and water in and pour over the altar. And just a few words later, fire has fallen from heaven and Elijah has slain all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Jezebel. And he has showed that God is the God of Israel and God is the God of the world. Elijah won a great victory that day. And it's not just a few chapters later. Jezebel says, Elijah, what you just did to my prophets, I promise you, I'll do it to you. Elijah gets a little fearful. Finds himself hiding from a queen. And he looks straight up at God and he says, God, just take my life. It's too much for me to handle. The greatest leader, the greatest military mind, the greatest prophet to ever walk this earth. And they sit there and say, God, it's too much. It's just overwhelming me. Why do we think that everyday normal Christians would not have these same emotions? We almost shame them into having faith. Like, oh, you mean to tell me you're so heartbroken that you're having trouble mustering up enough faith to say God's going to get me through this trial? And we shame them into thinking that they're just faithless outcasts before an all-powerful and all-knowing God. But at the end of the day... Everyone struggles with feelings of disappointment. Everyone struggles with feelings of uh, depression. And these men did just like we do today. Job, in the very middle of everything that is going on with him, as his family's died, his lands have been taken away from him, his cattle have been burned, uh, 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 all these things, just one thing after another, Job looks at God and says, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said there is a man-child conceived. He says, God, it would have been better if I had never ever walked on this earth, if I had never seen the light of day, and if I had never been born. That's Job. Job, a man of faith. Job, the man who goes through probably the most devastating time in all this world, and yet he says, God, it's just a little too much. Not only Job, but Jonah, after he's thrown up on the beach and he makes his way to Nineveh and sees a tremendous revival. He doesn't like the way the revival goes, however. And he gets so angry and so uh, disappointed over the whole thing. He looks at God and says, Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. I want to tell you tonight, it is not shameful if you're discouraged. It is not shameful or, or this terrible abomination to God if every once in a while you get a little heartbroken. If every once in a while this world just seems to be winning the battle and we seem to be losing ground every day. It's not shameful. But I'm here tonight to tell you, God makes the same promise to you that he did to Paul right here in our passage. Be not afraid, for I am with thee. Be not afraid. I want to take a look at a few things tonight about depression and disappointment. First of all, I want you to notice the sources of depression and disappointment. The sources. Go back to our passage in Acts chapter 18. The Bible says in verse number 1, After these things, Paul departed from Athens 
and came to Corinth. Now really, there has been a span of a very short time when Paul has really covered a tremendous amount of ground. He has gone from Thessalonica to Berea, and uh, the Jews, which did not receive Christ, ran him out of Thessalonica. He goes to Berea, and as soon as the Jews in Thessalonica hear that he's spreading the word of God in Berea, they run him out of Berea. Paul goes down to Athens, and while he's waiting for his helpers in the ministry to arrive, the Bible says that Paul is, is hurting in his spirit. He's, he's pressed in his spirit for everything that's going on. And he begins to pray and he begins to preach the message of God. Now, I told you last week that it is about 85 miles from Berea to Athens. That is the shortest distance that I can find. I've seen maps that have it anywhere up to 120 miles from Berea to Athens. Now we come over from Athens and we find ourselves here in Corinth. And, the, and it is a 53-mile journey from Athens to Corinth. So in such a very short time, Paul has gone from Thessalonica to Berea, which is about 20 miles. He's gone from uh, Berea to Athens, which is about 85 miles. And he's gone from uh, 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 a Athens to Corinth, which is about 53 miles. You do the math. Paul has worked a lot to get where he is right now. I want to share with you the first reason why we, why uh, the source of uh, disappointment and depression. The first source of it is exhaustion. Paul has every right in the world to be exhausted right now. You see, he couldn't just hop in his Ford Focus. He couldn't just uh, uh, call for a helicopter ride, or uh, even if he's riding a donkey. You guys know if you travel more than an hour in a vehicle, you go out to get out of the vehicle at the gas station, you have trouble walking. Now, you put a donkey between your legs and travel the same distance. That's going to be tough on you. Did you know that God, from the very beginning of time, had a day for man to rest? Did you know that Jesus later on says that the, Sabbath, that the man was not made for the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath was made for man? Just as much part of the Sabbath day of worship was rest. You see, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 35, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you a holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. You see, Jesus understood and God understood that every once in a while we need a rest. When did, when did Satan decide his best opportunity to tempt Christ was? Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, Jesus retreats. And he goes into the wilderness and for 40 days and 40 nights he fasts. He doesn't eat a thing, he doesn't drink a thing. 40 days and 40 nights. You know why Satan tempted Jesus there? He was physically, mentally, and spiritually exhausted. And Satan and his cunning, divisive nature that he has and all of his smarts and intellect, you know what he said? If I'm ever going to get him to fall, it's going to be when he is wore out. The Bible says that at the end of 40 days he tempted Lord Jesus. Man, in this society that we live in, in our world, we are always going, are we not? 
We are on the move constantly. We are doing, doing, doing. It seems like things never get done, but we are constantly at movement and work. Have you ever noticed that about us? We, we travel so fast, they had to create a way for us to put terrible food into our body at a rapid rate. It's called fast food. They said, we're not killing them fast enough, so we're going to make a place where they can go get their food in less than five minutes and then die sooner because of it. It tastes so good, though, doesn't it? You see, we're always going. And you know when disappointment and depression has a, a, a chance to set in? When you're not all there. When you're not at your best. When you are physically wore out, when you are mentally wore out, and when you are spiritually exhausted, that's when disappointment and depression have a chance to step in. Not only when you're exhausted, but secondly, when you have anxiety. When you have anxiety, look in verse 5 of our chapter 18 here in our, our text. The Bible says, And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now, what was Paul's occupation? What was his vocation? What was his job? It was to preach. It was to care for the souls of dying men. It was to get the message of the gospel to every single person so that they would have the choice to hear and accept Christ. The Bible says, as he arrives here in our passage, the Bible says that because of his job, because of his occupation, because of his calling, he is pressed in the spirit because of everything that he saw. Have you ever noticed we sometimes worry about a lot of things we have no ability to fix? Paul, in his spirit, is concerned, he's worried, he's tore up about the salvation of these men and these women. Paul was worried. You see, we get worried, don't we? We fill ourselves with anxiety all the time. Uh, Hudson Taylor said this, let us give up our work, our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, our all right into God's hand. And then, when we have given all over to Him, there will be nothing left for us to be troubled about. But therein lies the problem, is we don't give Him everything. We take our things that we feel that we can accomplish in our own power, and in our own strength, and we almost hoard them. And we hold on to them and say, God, I'll, I'll save your power, and I'll save your grace, and I'll save your mercies for the big stuff. But today I'm just going to take this one on my own. And then, because we're so smart, we worry about it the whole time. We struggle with it. We fight against battles that... We make molehills into mountains. When God looks at a mountain and says, that's no big thing. I can move those with just a little bit of faith. I can move mountains. And yet we look at things and we say, how am I ever going to do that? I'm just going to take it on. And God says, cast all your cares upon me for I care for your soul. Sometimes we worry about so many things, but... I don't believe it's wise for a Christian to worry. I believe that's why the Bible says in Matthew 6, verse 34, 
Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Notice this, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. In other words, the Bible says, don't you worry, there's going to be plenty of problems tomorrow, but how about you just fight the problems for today and let those take care of themselves when they come? I believe the Bible says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, Jesus came to give us peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He came to give us an everlasting peace. But I, I don't know about you, sometimes my life doesn't seem so peaceful. Sometimes my life seems like I'm going from one appointment to the next appointment, trying to get to the next thing, to fight the next battle and lose the next war. And it just seems like I'm always running behind. But Jesus says, I give you peace. But so often we avoid the words of uh, Hudson Taylor and we don't hand Christ everything. And we don't give him the small battles because we in our foolishness think that we can handle them. But God says, I'll take them. And I care about them. And I'll help you with them. Not only exhaustion and anxiety, but thirdly, a source of depression is when we feel unappreciated. When we feel unappreciated. You know what uh, Paul says to this same exact church in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15? He says these words, And I will very gladly be, uh, spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you the less I be loved. Doesn't it feel like sometimes we spend ourselves for everybody? We spend ourselves for the employer. We spend ourselves for our family. We spend ourselves for uh, every uh, 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 person that wants our money. We spend ourselves. And Paul says, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. But the more I loved you, the more it seemed that you loved me less. You ever get that way? You ever feel that no matter what you do, it's not good enough for the people you're doing it for? I believe tonight it has a lot to do with our motives as to why we struggle with this. The Bible says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. See, there's our problem. The reason we work is because our boss wants us to work. And we do it with all of our might as unto the man writing the paycheck. And we try our very best to be the best father that we can, to be the best husband that we can. And I have very little experience with this, but to be the best mother we can. But it just seems like the people who we do the most for appreciate it less than anybody. Can I encourage you tonight? How about everything that you do, you do for God. And we know our God is merciful and compassionate and graceful and loving and kind and good to us, far beyond anything that we could be good back to Him. And so it doesn't seem like such a battle when we're doing it for Him. Even though we may not get a thank you at the end of the day, at least we don't find ourselves depressed and disappointed because of people's unthankfulness. Tell you what, if somebody felt unappreciated, it ought to have been David. 
You remember when Samuel was summoned to go find David? He goes and, and God instructs him to go to Jesse. Because one of his sons is going to be anointed the next king of Israel. Jesse calls Eliab because surely, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Y'all remember Samuel saying that? Eliab comes up and Samuel says, we got him. This is the guy for sure right here. And the Lord says, no, that's not the one. So Samuel and Jesse get together and they say, how many more sons do you have? And Jesse says, oh, I have this many sons. And so they go get them all. And they bring them and set them before Samuel and say, is this the one? And God says, no, that's not the one. Is this the one? No, that's not the one. What about him? Oh, no, that's not the one. What about him? Oh, no, that's not the one. And Samuel looks at Jesse and says, man, you done run out of sons. And Jesse says, well, not really. But the one doing the sheep ain't probably what you're looking for. Samuel says, bring him to me. David is brought before Samuel, and Samuel's first impression is, that ain't the guy. And the Lord has to talk Samuel into anointing him king. He says, look not on his countenance, look not on his stature, for... uh, Man seeth on the outward appearance, but God seeth on the heart. And while Samuel looks at David and says, you ain't going to be it. You know, the whole time, David never did anything wrong. He was just obeying his dad. He was just doing what his dad had asked him to do. And it's almost like when Samuel sees him, it's like Samuel almost rejects him and says, no, there's no way. Man, that would kind of feel unappreciative. Then, not just a chapter later, we find 1 Samuel chapter 17. David is instructed to go down to the battle to bring his brothers some some food and just to check on them. David goes down to the battle and there's old Goliath of Gath, the champion, the great Philistine. Every day he comes out and insults the warriors and the armies of God, saying, I defy you, Israel. I defy the armies of the living God. Every day, David comes down to the battle and he looks at what's going on and he says, are we just going to let this guy talk like that? Are we just going to let him talk about our God like that? And he says these words, is there not a cause? You know what Eliab says? David, you shut your mouth. I'm paraphrasing. He goes on to say, David, I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. Thou art come down that you might see the battle set in array. David, you just want to go come see some blood and guts spilt. You, you shouldn't even be here, David. Why are you even here? David says, I'll tell you what, I'll fight this battle. He goes to King Saul. And really, if you study your Bible, the person that should have been in that valley was not David. It should have been Saul. Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. Saul was the best matchup they had. And yet Saul set up in his tent, being fanned, worried. And David says to Saul, Saul, I'll go down, I'll fight him. I'm not afraid of him. He's talking about my God, and I love my God too much for him to do that. Saul, I'll go down and fight him. And Saul says, you're but a youth. And he, a man from his youth. 
You're young, but he's been fighting since he was young. David says, let me go. Saul tries giving his armor. It doesn't work. David goes down and fights the battle, wins uh, pretty decisively, I might add, uh, considering that uh, the great champion of Philistia didn't even get one blow in. Well, he said some words and then just kind of cut mid-sentence. You're a dog. It kind of looked like that. That's the way I imagine it. And then everybody meets David with great joy and jubilation. David has slain, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. Those very words set a spark in Saul's heart. And although in chapter 15 and chapter 14, David and Saul were... Uh, the Bible says that David loved Saul and that Saul was very fond of David as well. Even though that took place the very moment some woman said that cheer, you know what happened? Saul did nothing for the rest of his reign but try to kill David. Talk about being unappreciative. But you know why David went down to fight that battle in the first place? It wasn't for Saul. You want to know why David went down there in the first place? It wasn't for his brother Eliab standing up on the mountain not willing to go down and fight. It wasn't for his dad Jesse who didn't even know that he was going to be down in the battle. It was for the living God of Israel. It was because God needed a warrior that day and all the men who should have stepped up were not warrior or man enough. And David, just a boy, steps down in that valley and says, I defy you by the... I defy you, Goliath. Uh, Today I will feed your flesh to the birds of the air. And David fought that battle. You know why he didn't get discouraged? Is because he didn't fight it for Saul. So when Saul was unappreciative, he just kept right on trucking. Wife, what do you do for your husband that you feel unappreciated that you do? Truth be told, you ought not do it for your husband. You ought to do it to bring glory to God. Husband, what is it that you do for your wife that you just, I can't believe she never thanks me. Husband, it is your job to show your children what the love of God looks like. And did you know that God gives good gifts? Did you know that God does amazing things for His children? So it is our obligation, fathers, to be that representation of God in our home. So you ought to be the best father you can be, not for your kids, not for your wife, not for this church, but for God. Some of the sources of disappointment and depression. Secondly, I want you to notice the stacking of depression and disappointment. Recently, Joshua Christian Academy, uh, I've been coaching the basketball team, and recently we have struggled, we will say that. Our basketball team won our very first game, and it was a game that nobody really uh, even gave us a chance in. Looking at the other team warming up, everybody said, no, no way, there's no way. And, uh, and so I, was, I told my guys, like, you never know what's going to happen. I've seen lots of Disney movies. They, they carry people out on their shoulders. You never know. Maybe they'll make one about us. You know, fight, fight, fight. Viva la France. You know, I, did, I didn't know what to say. And so uh, we were trying to do everything we could. And, 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 man, the guys went out there. They fought hard. They played out of their minds. And they won that thing. And so we were excited. Oh, man. Well, I... The, the next game I wasn't able to be at, but Mandy uh, uh, coached them, and she said, Man, Andrew, they fought so hard. They did such a good job. 
they did just so well. Just at the very end, they started beating us. And I was like, man, okay, all right. Uh, last week, we went and played a team, and, uh, and we went up there, and I walked in the gym. I said, oh, they're good, but, you know, I remember what we did that good team the other night, so we'll never know. Let's just see. And uh, we got slaughtered. Slaughtered. But I'm thinking, hey, that's all right. They had one kid who could shoot three-pointers. I think he shot six, three, six for nine that night, so he only missed... Uh, three of the nine he shot. A great shooter, but that wasn't the impressive thing. The impressive thing was when he went and he dunked over one of our kids. Our kid's sitting there trying to take a charge, and this guy just goes, like he's on an elevator, like going up, and he just slams it right over top of our kid, and our kid falls to the ground in the fetal position crying. Why did he do that? That was so mean. And I'm like, oh, dude, that was awesome. And so it was... It was it was crazy, but I, I said, you know what? That ain't no big deal. We didn't play our best game tonight. Not, we didn't play our best, but that was a good team we played. The next game we play, uh, we went and played a team, and I'm watching them warm up, and I'm like, I told Mandy, we got this. We got this. And God spanked me, and we got beat pretty handily that night as well. I'm thinking, hey. We're only on a two-game losing streak. That ain't no big deal. We go play in a tournament this uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We get there Thursday, and uh, the first game we played, we uh, got beat pretty bad. And when I say pretty bad, I mean like 20, 30 points, you know, a bunch. The next game, I'm like, well, you never know. We'll, we'll just see. We'll go play as hard as we can this Friday. They were beating us by nearly 40 points in the second quarter. We were getting killed. And it just seemed like my guys who had been playing so well that first game and that second game, it was like we forgot that the ball was round. Because we could not throw the ball, we could not catch the ball, we could not shoot the ball. It was like we, we, we were seeing double because we sure weren't shooting at the one rim that existed. So it had to be one of the two on the side. We were missing layups. We were doing everything terrible. It was so bad. So bad. And I don't mean to embarrass my assistant coach, Mandy. She came out of the locker room in tears and said, I don't know what to do. You know, the first game was so promising. And then we got caught in the snowball that just took us all downhill. And we just all got lost. You ever notice that's how problems are? One stacks on upon another, and then another, and then another. And while we were disappointed with the first result, we were disappointed with the second result, we were disappointed with the third. And by the end of it all, we become just a little depressed because they just continue to stack up. I want you to notice, first of all, it often has to do with outcomes. It has to do with the outcomes of situations. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this phrase over the last six months. I got angry at God. When I hear those words, my heart breaks. And don't think you're too good to have those feelings. 
But when I hear that, I just think, man, God is so good to us. He would never do anything to hurt us or, or to harm us in any way. And, and I'm talking about good Christian people that I grew up with when I was younger. Good Christian people who have been serving God for years and years and years, never had a fault in their faith, and they are the ones that become angry at God. You know what the types of situations are that they become angry over? They lose a life of someone they love dearly, and they feel it's premature. The reason I say, and they feel it's premature, is because God is too good to do anything like that, to take people from us that we care about for no reason. His ways are not our ways. Neither are His thoughts our thoughts, but sometimes that's hard for us to wrap our mind around. When people feel like God has taken someone they love prematurely, it's when we feel like we do not have privileges that other people have. For instance, when a mother is not able to have a baby. When a woman who her whole life has played with Barbies and her whole life has wanted dolls and her whole life has dreamed of being able to have a child and then one day have a doctor look her in the eye and say, I'm sorry, it's not medically possible. And this ball of fire gets lit in their heart and they say, but I know parents that are horrible to their kids. That is not fair for me to not be able to have that opportunity. And we feel like God's given us the raw end of the deal or the short straw. And we just feel like the whole world is crashing down upon us because God has hurt us in some way or God has done something that was not fair to us. And so we become a little bitter and it leads straight to depression. That's why the Bible says, Beware lest any root of bitterness spring up because like a trap traps a varmint or a raccoon, it springs up and grabs at you all of a sudden. And soon you find yourself in a dark, dark hole you never thought you would be in, all because you've been treated unfairly. You know, Paul here is not seeing near the results he wants to see. He's gone from city to city preaching to Jews only to be run out of town by the same Jews he loves. Do you know in Romans chapter 3, Paul says these words, I would wish myself accursed from Christ for my kinsmen. In other words, he would literally send himself to hell if all of his brethren in Israel would come to know Christ. And yet he goes to Thessalonica. You want to know who runs him out of town? It wasn't the Greeks. It was not uh, some Gentile. It was his kinsmen. The Jews ran him out of town. He goes to Berea, and these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. And the Jews in Thessalonica come over and run him out of Berea so that those that would receive the message can't receive the message. He finally finds himself in Athens. And to paint a vivid picture for you of what Athens would be like, it was the modern-day Las Vegas. It was Sin City. You understand, they combined sex with religion so bad that they had a temple where a thousand prostitutes sold their body in the name of God. And Paul preaches to them, and his heart's broken and spilled out for these people, and he does not see near the results that he wants to see. He's broken. 
just like we find ourselves sometimes. Disappointed with results, feeling that we're not good enough, feeling like our, our talents and our abilities are only falling flat. It has to do with outcomes, but I want you to notice this. It also has to do with our outlook. Let me read you some things that Paul wrote. I want you to take your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is what Paul says. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Paul says, oh, we got a lot of things wrong. We got a lot of opposition. We got a lot of problems. It seems like everybody's running us out of town. It seems like everywhere I preach the message, people cast me out or, 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 or hurt me or, or harm me in some way. It seems like everything we do, there's opposition. But I promise you, brother, we're not, the, the battle's not yet won. The battle's not yet finished. God's still doing a work. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where you find yourself. The Bible says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Now you know what he's talking about. He's talking about something that has been put in his life that he wants victory over, that he wants out of his life because it's a hindrance to him, whether physically, whether in his preaching ability, whatever it is, it's a hindrance to his ministry. And he says, I asked God to get rid of it three different times. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength, that's not my strength, that's not Paul's strength, that's God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, and this is Paul speaking, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. You see, outcomes change. Uh, I've heard many stories where women who were told by a doctor that they could never become pregnant have a miracle happen in their life, and somehow God gives them a child. Outcomes change, but you know what doesn't? Your outlook. How you view problems in your life. Paul looked at problems as an opportunity to see God's hand in his life. He says, when I have weakness, I, I rejoice in my weaknesses because it's through that weakness that God uses his power and makes me strong. Did you know it was not until the three Hebrew children would not bow until God showed himself in the fiery furnace? Did you know that it was not until Daniel stayed and prayed all night uh, and then God showed himself strong in the lion's den? See, God's looking for us to accept 
the things that He has placed in our lives, not to accept them because uh, it's our duty or our obligation. We are to accept them because we know in His sovereign plan and in His almighty wisdom, He has got some great things if we will just look ahead. In your weakness, God wants to use you. Now, y'all, y'all know and y'all went through what I went through with my daughter Haley. Uh, y'all were here the whole time. Y'all prayed for me. Y'all helped me. I can't even begin to imagine trying to go through that difficulty in our life without you there to support us and help us through that. But recently, I had the opportunity to go up and speak to a friend, a friend who was going through a situation that was almost identical to what we went through. Things changed just slightly, but the, the emotions that would be felt, the, the heartache that would be felt was the exact same. You're, you know... A year ago, two years ago, when we went through that trial, it was like we were just buried under a mountain of sorrow and just, just there was no reason for it. And we just said, why? But just a few weeks ago, when I went to that hospital room and I looked in the, my, my friend's eyes, who I've grown up with and I've known since we were just children, and I said, God has a plan. And I said, it's difficult to see it now. But when you get down the road and you look back, you'll see things in your life that God got you through and God helped you through. And I promise, this will not be one of the hardest times in your life. This will be one of the most blessed. I don't know why God put me through that other than so that I can say that with assurance to every person I come in contact with. That when valleys and trials and mountains and and whatever comes down the way, when those things are put in your life, God's not doing it for your harm. He's doing it to help you. He's not trying to uh, strain you or strangle you. He's trying to strengthen you. God wants nothing but good for you. And He wants to help you through those. uh, We've looked at the... uh, the, uh, stacking of depression and disappointment. I want you to look with me finally at the solution to disappointment and depression. Look in verse 10. This is a tremendous promise. And if you mark in your Bible, you would be wise to underline this because this promise is not only to Paul, it's to us as well. In verse 10, even though Paul is having these feelings of insecurity, he's having these feelings of disappointment and depression and pain, whatever you want to call it, he is at at one of the lowest times in his life And God gives him this in verse 10. For I am with thee. And no man shall sit on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. I want you to notice the first thing that God gives us as a solution to disappointment and depression is his presence. You know, if Christ is all that I have, you know I have all that I need. Did you know that when valleys and mountains seem to overwhelm us, Christ is the one that creates mountains? Did you know that Christ is the one that speaks and billowy waves settle? Did you know that Christ is the master of the sea? He's the mountain mover. He's the water walker. Did you know that he did not only perform those acts in the Gospels for us to see, he performs those acts in the lives of every Christian here tonight. God has your best interest at heart. 
Christ wants nothing but good for you. Christ wants to help you. And He promises that He will never leave you nor forsake you. My wife and I were reading our Bible the other night, and we were laying in bed reading this together. We read Psalm chapter 146, verses 5 through 9. The Bible says this, and I encourage you to try paying attention. The Bible says, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. Notice this. Which executeth judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food to the hungry. The Lord looseth the prisoners. The Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. The Lord raiseth them that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. The Lord preserveth the stranger. He relieveth the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked he turneth upside down. You see that passage there? I I looked at my wife and I asked her, what did you get out of that? And she said, the fact that God is with me to help me. The fact that He helps us. The fact that whether my problem is is pain, whether my problem is depression, whether my, my problem is weakness, whether my problem is not understanding, God is there to relieve the need that you have. Oh, He's so good to us. He promises His presence. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, there's a problem, though, is we don't come to him. Jesus says, Come unto me. And I'll make it easy. Come unto me and I'll take the load off your shoulders. But do we go to him? You see, he promises his presence. But are we willing to pass it? I hope we are. God's presence is promised. Secondly, I want you to notice this. God's provision. Verse 10 and verse 11. The Bible says, And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. You see, God's trying to teach Paul two lessons here. First of all, that trials don't last forever. That's what he says. He says, uh, And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. If you've ever studied Paul's life, you know that there was a lot of people out to get him. He goes through a list of things that he goes through Uh, He says, oh, I've been shipwrecked. Uh, Three times I was beaten by a a, a cat of nine tails. Uh, I've I've been in perils. I've been hungry. I've been beaten. I've been all these things. Paul dealt with problems all the time. People wanted to stone him. People wanted to kill him. People wanted to harm him. But God says, Paul, right now, nobody's going to hurt you. For this brief time... Nobody's going to try hurting you. God promised him that trials don't last forever. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's hard to see the end of the trial when you're in it. But did you know that God has never tempted any man above that he was able to bear it? But that God would provide grace that we might be able to bear it. Sometimes it's hard to see the end of the trial, but God says trials end. The second lesson he was trying to teach him is that triumphs are just around the bend. 
look in the end part of verse number 10. For I have much people in this city. Now, as far as I know, and as far as I can tell, this is, I know for a fact this is Paul's first time to ever be in Corinth. So if Paul, being almost an ambassador, if you will, to the world, he's the, really the first missionary to go and reach out the outer parts of the world, the gospel has not expanded tremendously since the time of Christ. And so Paul is sent all around, and this is Paul's first time to be in Corinth. So I wonder why God would say, for I have much people in this city. Because in reality... There wasn't nobody in that city that was God's. When Paul showed up, he made Christian population one. So what was God saying? Paul, if you'll do what I want you to do, if you'll stay here, and verse 11 tells us exactly how long God wanted Paul to stay there, a year and a half. And God says, Paul, if you stay here, you'll see things, you'll see people come to know me, you'll see uh, people come to trust me, Paul, you'll see the formation of a church that we will have letters written to that will be the foundation of how we run the New Testament church. Paul, you don't even know what's about to happen. You don't even see the potential. But Paul, I have a lot of people in this town that need to hear your voice. So when I'm with you and I promise to be with you, you stand up and preach the word of God. You stand up unashamedly and proclaim the truth of the gospel. God says trials won't last forever, but triumphs are just around the bend. Sometimes we're in the middle of that valley and it's hard to see just the other side. Sometimes we're buried down with our problems and the load seems too heavy for us to bear. God says, I promise to be with you. You keep plugging along. You keep striving. You keep helping me. You keep working for me. You keep serving me. You keep glorifying me. And if you'll do that, trials won't last forever. Triumphs are just around the bend. One day there was a young boy who went to school. His mother picked him up from school and she realized that from the time when she dropped him off to the time that she picked him up, his countenance had changed. In fact, she couldn't exactly tell what was wrong with him, but she could tell that he was very sad. The mother, very inquisitive as to what would have caused her son to have such an emotional change where in the morning he was just fine and now he's just very, very sad and not speaking, she says, son, what's wrong? Did something happen today at school that, that, that made you sad? The son went on to tell his mom that Billy had showed back up at school today. You see, Billy had missed three consecutive days at school and nobody knew why. The son went on to explain to the mom that Billy, uh, with a crowd of friends around, looked at all of them and said, my dad died. Three days he had missed school, and Billy did not know that news, and so the mother, quite concerned with how that news would have affected her son, she said, well, son, what did Billy do after he told you? He said he just put his head on his desk and cried. The mother, not sure what to say next, she said, son, what did you do? She said, I didn't know what to do. I just put my head down on my desk and I cried with him. You know what the Bible promises us? Hebrews chapter 4. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, 
but was in all points tempted like us, yet without sin. Every time you want to put your head on your desk and cry, you know what Jesus wants to do? Put his on his desk and cry. You see, he faced every problem that we can face. He felt every heartache that we can feel. I point you to the day when he stood outside of Lazarus' tomb. You know what the Bible says he did in John 11? Jesus wept. Why? He knew the outcome. Why? Didn't he have the power to save him? Why would he cry? You know why? Because others were crying. Because Lazarus' sisters were heartbroken. Because Jesus saw the effects of sin on his child's life. Jesus wept and did a miracle. You know what Jesus is wanting to do in your depression? You know what Jesus is wanting to do in your disappointment? He's wanting to weep, but he's wanting to do a miracle. He's wanting you to have enough faith to just say, God, I give it to you. The day-to-day battles which I've been fighting for so long, God, I hand it to you. And as soon as you do, oh, the water walker, oh, the mountain mover, oh, the guy who can do anything, the one who spoke the seas into existence, the one who created the world, the one who the Bible says by all things are upheld by the word of his power, that God wants to do a miracle in your life. I promise you that's better than any antidepressant you'll find. That's better than any medication any doctor can prescribe. I'm no doctor, but I promise you this, Christ is all you need.